Well, uh, as Ashley and Chelsea said yesterday, this is our 17th retreat, 17 years now. And you know, I was thinking about that the other day with the privilege of being here, um, working with Compass Women for 17 years that by God's mercy, uh, he has worked it out so that I have never had to miss a scheduled teaching, uh, whether it's a retreat or a Bible study or women in faith or navigating motherhood. And I was, as I was thinking that, I remembered, oh yes, I did miss one. It was actually one at navigating motherhood. I was uh, scheduled to teach our guests about repentance, oddly enough. And the night before, I started running a little bit of a fever, and I felt my tongue was like burning and hurting. So I went to the Telega walk-in clinic, which is near our house, and the doctor checked me out, took my temperature, and said, I think you have uh, an infection in the bed of your tongue, and that can be extremely dangerous. He gave me a really strong antibiotic, and he said, if your fever spikes at all, you need to go check yourself into the ER. So I went to the pharmacy, and I got the strong antibiotic, and when I got the antibiotic, the pharmacist at Walmart said, this is the first time that I've ever had a doctor prescribe this antibiotic. This is an extremely strong antibiotic, and he was kind of looking at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Well, you know, the next day I had to teach at Navigating Motherhood and was all ready and excited and I got there and I was talking to some of the great leaders there, the servants, about what had happened the night before and, you know, how I had this little bit of a fever and then I felt something wrong with my tongue and then the doctor talked about this potential infection in the bed of my tongue and some of my friends were like, ooh, yeah, I've heard about that. Those infections in your mouth, if they get in the bed of your tongue, I mean, it's deadly. Like, if you don't take care of it right away, you can die. And suddenly, I felt my fever spike. Like, literally. I'm not even joking. And I remember being there in the auditorium of Compass, and they had coffee up against the wall. And I remember standing right in front of the coffee, and suddenly, my legs gave out. I'm not even joking. And I was just thinking about this. And my legs gave out, and I was kind of lifting my arms up. And my great friend, Christine Williams, who was directing all of Navigating Motherhood at the time, came over and said, I think I need to take you to the ER. <laughs> and she did. She left. I left. She took me to Mission Hospital. I went into the ER, got the IV, let them know I think I have an infection underneath my tongue. Uh, somehow, I think she contacted my daughter, Hannah. Hannah showed up there, too. I'm at my bedside with the IV, ready for an MRI. The doctors come in. We don't know what's wrong with you. They gave me an MRI, and afterwards, he came back, and he said, you seem like you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> He said, but the MRI did show something uh, under like the base, the root of your tongue. And I'm concerned and you're going to have to get that checked out. And so I thought, okay, I can do this. I'm strong. You know, Jesus is with me. And uh, I said, okay, you, you think it's cancer? And he just said, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say at this point. 
So I scheduled an appointment with Head and Neck Associates and waited, you know, as the days seemed like years to get that appointment, went down there and the doctor, you know, was looking at the results from the MRI and looking at all the tests. He said, I just can't, I can't figure this out. And so he got an associate and they literally came together, these two doctors, and I'm standing right there and we're all looking at the data. I don't know why I'm looking at it, but we're all looking at it. And the associate that he brought over said, you know, I think that's a, a pocket of fat. <laughs> and the other doctor said, you're right. <laughs> it's a pocket of fat. And then they looked at me and just said, you're okay. It's a pocket of fat. I'm like, great. It's a pocket of fat. And I went home, drove home. Okay, there you go. Uh, uh, misdiagnosis, right? My symptoms were misdiagnosed. And, you know, I thought that I might have this, you know, infection in my tongue or then cancer. And it turned out to be a small pocket of fat. <laughs> Well, you know, misdiagnosis can really mess us up. Uh, you know, that was one where it turned out to be better than what I expected. Well, I guess it's better. I mean, some might argue. But, um, you know, what about when we misdiagnose and it's not better? What about when we misdiagnose something and we think it's something small and we want to put a Band-Aid on it, but really there's a cancer there? And we can do that not only physically, but spiritually as well. Uh, we can misdiagnose our problems. We can misdiagnose our, our feelings, our emotions, uh, our feelings of, you know, anxiety or worry. And there might be something deeper that we're not dealing with that God is trying to show us. We see that in the text that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 32. We'll work through Psalm 32 and see what lessons God has there for us about the potential potentially real source of some of our emotional pain or worry or anxiety. So I know it's printed in your workbook. If you don't have that, you can look it up in your Bible, pull it up on your phone. But again, we're going to read through Psalm 32. Uh, Psalm 32 begins a mascal of David. And then it says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Okay, so David uh, writes this psalm. It says in the beginning that this is a maskal of David. Uh, that Hebrew word there, maskal, it's not really translated. It's as Pastor Mike says, transliterated, where the Hebrew letters are just M-S-K-L. So we get the word maskal, and no one really knows what that means. It's probably a musical notation. Uh, the psalms were songs, and these were sung. And so it was probably a musical notation describing some type of music that the first audience would have been familiar with. Uh, the root of the word maskal is used in verse 8 of this psalm uh, to talk about instructing and teaching. So some feel that the maskals are, in a sense, uh, wisdom psalms, that there's wisdom that's here. And I think we're going to see that, that there is great wisdom in this psalm. As it begins, again, in the first two verses, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So blessed literally means happy. Happy or rejoicing is this person. It's the person who's been forgiven. So that's the very first point that we need to note down is admit you need forgiveness. As David wrote, uh, happy is the one who has been forgiven. Forgiven of what? Uh, there are three words that are used there. Forgiven of transgressions, forgiven of sins, and forgiven of iniquities. And these are three different Hebrew words, and they're just giving us a full-orbed picture of our violation of God's holy standards. Uh, the word transgression can really be breaking the law. Uh, blessed is the one who's been forgiven for breaking God's law. The times that we did what we knew we weren't supposed to do. And then it goes on with sin. And we know that sin means missing the mark. Uh, the Hebrew word means missing the mark here as well. And it's like uh, when we don't do what we're supposed to do. When God has a design or a plan for our life. Uh, when he calls us to a certain behavior and we fail to do that. So maybe we're not necessarily violating his law, but we're uh, failing to do all that he calls us. And then iniquity there, it's like a twisting, uh, a twisting of what we're supposed to do. It's when we do things that God called us to do, but we do them our way. You know, we kind of add a little bit or we take out a little bit and we do it, but we do it the way we want to do it. So again, it's this full-orbed picture of sin. And David says, happy, happy is the person who's been forgiven of this. Uh, he says, uh, the one who the Lord imputes no iniquity to, that no iniquity, none of the, the wrongs are counted against us. I mean, that is a happy person. And then he clarifies by saying who this happiness belongs to. And we see it in the bottom of verse two. It says, the one in whose spirit there is no 
deceit. The one in whom there is no deceit. She is not dishonest about her sin. Uh, There's a real feeling, a real um, emotion of honesty in this psalm. And it's really a time for us to say, okay, God, I want to spend the next few minutes being honest before you about my sin and my standing before you. We see uh, the same thing in the New Testament. We're all familiar with 1 John, 1 John 1, 7 and 8. Uh, I'll read it to you. I'm sure some of you have even memorized this. Uh, It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that's God. God is light. And if we walk in God's light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then it goes on in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're not being honest. If we're sitting here right now saying, I have no sin, I have conquered all sin, I have personally done that, you've deceived yourself, and the truth is not in you. As we walk in the light, even as Christians, uh, we see when we fail God, when we transgress against God, when we sin against God, uh, when we have iniquities in our life, and we don't like it. Because we're walking in the light. And when we walk in the light, we don't like those things. We see the ugliness of our failure and we we turn from it. So an honest woman, an honest woman, a woman who is without deceit, like the woman or the person that David describes, will admit that she battles with sin. We see that also in James, uh, the book of James chapter 3 verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2, James, talking to Christians, says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble, and in many ways. And then remember uh, the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray. Uh, They said, give us this day, Jesus said you're to pray, give us this day your daily bread, So we need bread every single day and forgive us our debts. Forgive us of our sins. We need to pray that regularly. That's the template for prayer is that we would ask for God to provide our needs and we would ask God to forgive us of our sins. So we need to, when we come before God and look at a text like this, we need to just ditch the deceit. Uh, We don't need to try to impress each other. We're standing before God. He knows who we are. He knows everything about us. And, you know, we need to say, okay, uh, even though I'm in Christ, I still battle with sin. And if we don't do that, if we're not honest and ready to do that, then we might misdiagnose. We might misdiagnose our pain and our panic and call it something when it's really something else. And we see that in David's personal example here. Uh, He shares from his own personal example. Look at verses three and four. He says, for when I, this is me, he was saying, when I kept silent, this is what happened. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, that was God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Uh, David is saying here, when I was silent, when I was silent about my sin, 
when I didn't admit and confess that I had sin, God got my attention. He's saying God did whatever it took to get my attention. And David needed to see that there was a connection between his misery and his silent sin. So the second point is, see your misery as a symptom of your guilt. I mean, often we have this internal misery and we don't connect the dots the way that David did and see that it's often fueled by our guilt. I mean, as he said here, it was like his bones were wasting away. He was groaning. God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up. He was just miserable internally and emotionally. Inward turmoil and agony. And, you know, we can have something like that and mislabel it and say, I'm dealing with anxiety. Or, you know, struggling with worry and anxiety when really there's something far deeper there. We need to go deeper and really say, God, are you trying to get my attention here? Because when David was silent, we see that God got involved. Uh, God's hand was heavy upon him to get his attention. And as I read uh, three times the word selah, uh, that's another one of those words like maskal that's transliterated from the Hebrew. And it's again a musical notation. But, you know, most scholars say this is a place where you pause and stop and think. Uh, maybe the place that there would be a guitar solo if there was a song, just a time to think and reflect. And that's here. You know, it's this stop and think and reflect about, you know, what unrepentant sin can feel like within us. And you might be thinking and reflecting, so to speak, right now and think that's so odd that God's hand would be heavy upon him. I mean, why would God, why would God himself do that to his own people? Why would he not only allow them to be miserable, but actually make them miserable, so to speak, when we're in sin? Uh, is that not mean of God or wrong of God? And the answer is no. I mean, one of the things that we forget is if we're battling something like this, if we have unrepentant sin and we're just miserable internally and we're trying to stuff it down and not deal with it right or put it off for another day, we have no idea of what it would be like to really bear the guilt of our sin. I mean, anything that God allows us to feel, any sense of discomfort or pain or misery, if he's trying to get our attention because we're not repenting of our sin, is nothing compared to what our sin has earned. Uh, we would literally implode from the inside out if we were to truly feel what our sin deserved. So no, it's not fair in that sense, and it's not fair it is fair in the other sense that God uses, he uses that guilty conscience, so to speak, and the agony of a guilty conscience uh, in a merciful way to get our attention. It is a gift from God. And that's something that we have to realize is that our pain, our physical and our emotional pain is actually a gift. It's a gift to get our attention and to reveal to us that something is wrong, something is off. 
a couple days ago, uh, my husband was up early and said, hey, come downstairs. You've got to come downstairs and check this out. And I was like, oh, brother, okay, running down the stairs. What is it? He's like, the guy across the street is getting arrested. There's like 16 cops out there. <laughs> okay, all right. I guess they took cops off TV, right? So I'm looking out the window, watching and watching, and it's like, wow, they're taking a long time. Who are they arresting? Do you know that guy? What's he like? What's going on? You know, making the avocado toast or whatever. I'm chopping up the tomatoes, looking out the window, and all of a sudden I feel this sharp bite, and I was like, wow, I just cut my finger. Uh, and it hurt. And it reminded me to stop cutting, right? Can you imagine if I sensed no physical pain? I'm just watching the guy out the window and there goes one <laughs> finger and there goes another one. I mean, physical pain is good, right? It, it alerts us to the fact that something is wrong and you need to stop. And it's the same with our emotional pain. It can be good as well if it's God trying to get our attention about unrepentant sin. I mean, even, you know, before I came over here tonight, thinking about the heat of the curling iron and seeing my little granddaughter sitting there and thinking, can you imagine if she didn't have any feeling in her hand and just held on to that hot curling iron? I mean, you know what would happen, the blisters, and pretty soon your hand would start to melt off. But we have physical pain. I'm sure we've all touched a hot curling iron before, and the first thing your hand does is recoil because it hurts. And that's the same way with emotional pain as well. It's a gift to us to get our attention. And it's something that we should not ignore. Uh, we shouldn't stuff it down. We shouldn't try to numb it out with, you know, all sorts of things that we turn to to try to numb it out. But we need to say, okay, God, what are you trying to show me? John 16, 8 through 11, Jesus talking about the promised Holy Spirit who was to come, he said, and when he comes, John 16, 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That conviction, we've all felt it, right? When we know sin, righteousness, and judgment, we're doing wrong. God is right. We failed his holy standard and we'll be judged because of that. It says concerning sin because they didn't believe, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is to be judged. We have to ask ourselves when we feel that emotional turmoil, God, are you trying to show me something? Is there something here that I'm silent about, that I'm not dealing with, that I need to deal with? Am I unrepentant? And you might think, well, I just feel like you're taking that too far, especially, you know, in the life of a believer. But think about this. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, we looked at it last night, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32, talking about uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. So these were, you know, Christians who were partaking of the Lord's Supper, and it says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and eat the bread and drink the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it goes on, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Uh, because you're not taking this seriously. You're not repenting of your sin before you participate in the Lord's Supper. 
So we got to think about ourselves. You know, these, these sins, these transgressions, uh, the sins, the iniquities. Uh, do we have any of those things that we're not forsaking in our lives, that we're not being honest about before God? Are we breaking his law and continuing to do it and just stuffing it down or ignoring it? Are we not doing what we know we're supposed to do? Or are we just bending things a little bit where we know deep inside it's not really what God wants us to do, but it's good enough and everyone else thinks it's fine. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. If you look at the, the list that Paul gave of the fruit of, basically, the result of of living in the flesh, of Christians who weren't living consistently with the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 21. I mean, there's some horrible things on this list, but there's some other things that maybe we tolerate or maybe we think are okay. Uh, Galatians 5, 19 says, the works of the flesh are evident, Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who practice these and don't repent of these, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolatry? Idolatry is just putting anybody or anything in the place of God. I mean, are we putting uh, things or people, even ourselves, in the place of God? If so, uh, we're guilty of idolatry. Are we bending God's laws and God's principles because we're trying to hold on to something? Bending God's laws and God's principles because we're afraid of losing that relationship? Then we are practical idolaters. Well, what about strife or fits of anger. Are you given over to losing your temper? I mean, maybe your friends here think you're so calm, cool, and collected, but your husband knows you rage when you don't get your way. That's wrong. That's something we need to deal with. And then jealousy and envy. I mean, how many in here can honestly say that they are cleansed and free from a jealous heart? I mean, how many in here look at other women and say, I should have what she has. I'm jealous of her. I don't think that she should be doing that or going there or have that. That should be me and not her. Jealousy is huge before God and envy. And if we're doing those things, we need to confess and repent. You know, a lot of times we blame social media on jealousy, right? We go, oh, it's social media that does it to us. No, it's your jealous heart. You look at social media and you're envying because you can't have what you see in that photo. And so you blame it on the tool rather than fixing the problem that's in your heart. And that is you need to deal with your own jealousy. We need to confess and we need to repent. We need to repent. And we should know, we hear it time and time again, but repenting means Turning around, stop doing what we're doing, and doing things God's way instead. It's like uh, if I was a smoker. Let's say I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. And I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, your lungs are not looking good. 
Uh, you're not young and you know, you've been smoking a long time and your lungs aren't looking good and you need to quit smoking. If you don't quit smoking, your lungs aren't going to last long. You're going to get cancer. You're going to die. And if I say, I totally agree with you, you're 100% right, you, you're, everything you're saying is true, and then I go home and light up, start smoking another cigarette. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, I've agreed to what the doctor says, but I'm not changing my behavior. And if I really believe what the doctor says, I'm going to change my behavior. And that's what it means to repent. It means we don't just say, oh, yes, I agree, yes, I agree, yes, I agree. But we stop doing what we shouldn't do, and we start doing what we should do. And we see that in David's personal testimony here in uh, verses 5 through 7. After he was silent about his sin, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. So he didn't try to hide it anymore. And he's letting all of us know that. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. There's a pause and stop and think. Therefore, he says, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. The third point here is just like David, we need to realize that repentance is what will bring us relief. If this is us, if this is what God's trying to show us or teach us, we've got to realize that we will be relieved when we repent. I remember back in the 70s, actually. I looked it up online and I thought, wow, that was in the 70s? That was 40 or 50 years ago? Uh, there was an old commercial where they said, how do you spell relief? Okay, good. There's a couple of my age here, right? What was it? Anybody remember? <laughs> yes. For you younger ones, R-O-L-A-I-D-S, Rolades. I mean, and that was like ingrained in our head. Well, you know, it's like what David is saying here, this old commercial from even older than the 70s, right? From maybe, you know, 3,000 years ago. How do you spell relief? R-E-P-E-N-T. That's how you spell relief. You repent. When you repent of your sins, you experience the same relief that David experienced here. Uh, he talked here about this guilt, like this pressure of guilt I mean, think of it like a dam and water piling up against the dam. And the guilt is just piling up and piling up and piling up. And the door of the dam has to be opened. And then the guilt is just released and washed away when we confess and repent of our sins. Uh, the text says in verse 5, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That word forgave there, it literally means in the Hebrew, you lifted up, you carried away. And it's this beautiful picture of having a boulder with the crushing weight of a boulder on top of someone being lifted up and carried away. And I know we've all experienced that at some time or another. And if we've never experienced uh, the pain of that crushing weight of sin, then we don't recognize who we are before a holy God. 
because we've all failed him. And at one time or other in our life, we should feel that pain, that weight of sin upon us. And it's only in Jesus that it's lifted up. Uh, This beautiful picture, Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ is the one who bore our sin. He's the one that lifted that boulder off of us, and he carried it for us. He took the weight of that off of our back, so to speak. So when we respond rightly to Jesus, when we respond rightly to the good news, he takes that weight off of us. He lifts that sin off of us and frees us so that we can truly live. And that's the gospel, right? I mean, we all have to say at some point or another, we have failed God. We have failed God. And because we have failed God, because God is holy and perfect, uh, if we die in that state of failure, separated from God because of our sins, we'll remain there separated eternally. And there's no hope for us. The only hope is if someone comes in and deals with our sin for us, and that's Jesus, the one that takes away that boulder of sin and lifts it off of us. And so we turn to Jesus, but we turn to Jesus uh, not by just agreeing that Jesus lifted the weight, but by also repenting and following after him instead. And then the Bible teaches that when we do that, we are literally transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into God's kingdom of light. We become citizens of heaven. We no longer are citizens of this earth, and yet we live on this earth. So we are new people, born-again people, who have been saved, but we live on a planet that we no longer belong to. We belong to heaven, and while we live down here, we battle. We battle against the world, the world system, the world thinking. We battle against our own uh, desires to do what we used to do. And we battle against our enemy, the devil, who wants us to sin against God and to rebel against our Savior. Uh, You know, we think about salvation and how salvation results from our surrender. And that's true. We do get to that point where we surrender our lives to Christ. We say, I get it. I need you. I'm helpless without you. And we surrender. But our sanctification, the process of living on this li- in this life, living on this planet as a saved person, that's no longer surrender. That's now war. So salvation is surrender, but sanctification, it's war. And that's why we need to wrap our minds around the difference there. We can be saved, and yet we still have to battle. And we have to battle sin, and we have to be willing to repent. Well, maybe you're on the other side of all of this. Maybe you feel like, you know, I, I feel miserable. I feel deep down inside miserable. But I have confessed, and I have repented, and I've come before God, and I just can't figure out what's going on here. Why do I feel so miserable deep inside? Why do I feel that weight, that guilt, even though I know I've confessed and I know I've repented? You feel like there's something that you still got to do. You still got some stain on your record. It's like, 
Jesus, what do I need to do? What do you want me to do to get this stain off my account? I don't want to sin against you. I want to do things your way. But I feel like I can't get this off my conscience. How do I shake it? I mean, you think about that situation that you were in as a Christian, and you totally mishandled it. And you should have known better. Or you think about those words that came out of your mouth. Those words that you said to your husband. Or those words that you said to your your own child. Or you think about what you did with your body. What you allowed your own body that Jesus gave you to be involved with. And maybe your sense of anxiety isn't really because you haven't confessed and repented, but maybe it's because you're not really trusting in Christ's work. You're not really trusting what Christ has done for you. Maybe you're thinking that because of my willful disobedience, I've got to add something myself to this this time. I can't expect Jesus to do it for me. Well, if you're feeling that way, uh, think about, you know, your sins, and there's a lot of them. And sometimes it's good just to stop and think about the things that we've done and those sins that haunt you. You know, even those ones that not that many people know about, maybe even no one knows about. And then listen to the words of Isaiah 118, where God says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. So God's saying, listen, let's think this through logically. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, though they are bright red, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God painting the picture here of this beautiful white garment and our sin is this deep red stain on a beautiful white garment. And you know what it's like if you even wash something white with something red, right? You can't get the stain out and we just can't get the stain out. Nothing that we can do will get that stain out and we're scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing trying to get the stain out and it's just not coming out and the more we scrub, the more it makes it worse. There's nothing that will get that stain out, nothing except the blood of Jesus. And so when we confess and we repent and we say, Jesus, I see that stain and I need your help. I can't get this stain out. I have nowhere else to turn. I I feel the guilt. I feel the weight. I have nowhere else to go. We've got to literally see our life, that garment, washed in the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is stronger than any bleach. It will eliminate every single trace of that sin. uh, So that not even a molecule of that sin is left. That's what God says here. He will remove it all. And what we need to do is we need to believe. We've got to trust God for that. We have got to trust him for that. We might remember the stain. Whether we remember it vividly or vaguely, we might still hold it in our mind. But God says, you've got to trust me. Jesus will wash that away.
And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, for us who are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is new. You're new. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. The old, it's gone. It's done away with. God says it's bleached out for every, forever, every single molecule of it. And you might think, I understand that. And I can repeat that to other people. And that's really great for her. But you don't know about me. I did wrong when I knew better. Okay, you did. I just don't deserve to be forgiven. You're right, you don't. But I was a Christian when I did this. Psalm 32, King David He was a man of God when he did this. This referring to adultery and uh, the execution of an innocent man. Yeah, David was a man of God when he did it. Well, how did David know that he had really confessed and repented? How was he able to have that confidence? He did the same thing we do. He agreed that his sin was wrong. He saw his sin for what it was, and he agreed that it was wrong. He asked for God's forgiveness, and he said, I choose to follow the Lord. And that's the same thing we need to do. Agree that it's wrong, ask for forgiveness, and say, God, I will follow you. We see that in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin... Remember, if we say we have no sin in 1.8, we lie and the truth is not in us. We're deceiving ourselves. But verse 1.9, 1 John 1.9, if when we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have honestly confessed and repented of your sin, then you have to trust God and his word more than you trust your feelings and more than you trust your emotions. You have to do it. We all have to do it. We have got to believe. Remember Jesus said, the kingdom of God, the gospel, repent and believe. We've got to trust. Sometimes we focus so much on the repentance that we forget we've got to believe it too. We've got to put our trust in this. So maybe your anxiety, maybe your feelings of misery are due to the fact that you are not trusting who God says he is. I mean, if you look back at that 1 John 1, 9, it says that he forgives us because he is faithful and he is just. It doesn't say if we confess our sins and we are faithful and we are just, he will forgive us our sins. No. Our forgiveness is based on his character and not ours. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us. Do you trust that? We have got to put our trust in that. We can't waver anymore. It's funny because we saw already twice in our texts that we've looked at. Last night's text and this morning's text. We saw that Jesus said to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. We didn't even plan that out. (laughs) Oh, you of little trust. 
we gotta trust, you guys, we gotta trust in the fact that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And we've gotta be able to be forgiven like David was and just move forward. We've got to be able to do that. Remember, Carlin taught us this morning, you know, when Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, he was saying, you're not trusting me. It's the same thing here. We've got to trust him. We've got to believe him. Believe that if we confess, if we repent, if we put our trust in him, then he forgives us. There was an old magazine uh, actually published in 1889. Uh, It's called The Sailor's Magazine and Seaman's Friend, if you want to look it up. But uh, it, it, it records something that I thought was super helpful. Uh, it says Martin Luther, you know who Martin Luther was, the great Protestant reformer who made a huge impact on the Christian faith. Uh, Martin Luther, in one of his conflicts with the devil, was asked by the arch enemy if he felt his sins forgiven. So Satan, it says, comes to Martin Luther and says, do you feel like your sins are forgiven? No, said the great reformer. I don't feel that they are forgiven, but I know they are because God says so in his word. We gotta lock our mind around that too. It doesn't matter if we feel forgiven. If we have genuinely confessed and repented of our sins and placed our trust in Christ, then we are forgiven whether we feel like it or not. He goes on, Paul did not say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will feel saved. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Huge difference there. He says, no one can feel that his sins are forgiven. Ask that man whose debt was paid by his brother. Do you feel that your debt is paid? No, is the reply. I don't feel that it's paid. I know from this receipt that it's paid. And I feel happy because I know it is paid. And then it goes on. So with you, dear reader, you must first believe in God's love to you as revealed at the cross of Calvary. And then you will feel happy because you shall know that you are saved. We have got to believe God and take God at his word. I think so much of our teaching this week has really focused on that. We've got to start believing God and not just being tossed around by our emotions and our feelings anymore. We've got to say, this is what the word of God says, and I am going to believe it, and I am going to rest myself upon that. If we feel guilty then we confess and we repent. But after we confess and repent, then guilt has done its job. We have a refrigerator in my kitchen that we've had for 15 years now, and it's big and we don't wanna have to get another one. But uh, it breaks down every now and then. And we hired a refrigerator repairman. Uh, His name was Elad. He was from Israel. We really liked Elad. Great conversations with him. And, you know, he gave us some strategic ways to prolong the life of our refrigerator. 
And when we were done with the conversation and the fixes that he gave us, he gave us a bill, we gave him the money, and he prepared to leave. Well, what would happen if Elad said, so what's for dinner tonight? <laughs> or if Elad said, where's the towels? I'm going to go shower up real quick. Dude, Elad, no, we gave you the check. It's time to go, right? You've done your job, and it's time to go. And if you don't leave, we're going to call 911, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the same way here. Guilt, it's done its job. If guilt, if these feelings, uh, if these feelings that David were experience, was experiencing, if they get us to that point of where we confess and we repent, then they've done their job. And it's time for us to call 911 if they continue to linger around. Or if we can't not call 911, we can anchor ourselves in the verse we looked at, John 1.9, right? John, 1 John 1.9. We can anchor ourselves in that and say, no, guilt, it's time for you to go. You've done what you needed to do and the job is done. Let's look again at what David said here in Psalm 32, verses 6 and 7. He continues, Therefore, because of all this, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Uh, even to the godly, he's saying, there's a sense of urgency here. Uh, offer prayer at a time when you may be found. He's saying, don't put this off. You need to deal with this right now. Don't say, I'm going to deal with that sin that I know I should deal with. I'm going to deal with it after I do X. Or after I, you know, get over there, God changes this, then I'll deal with that sin. Or, you know, after that circumstance changes. No. He's saying here, you need to do it now. You need to do it tonight. Uh, even if the sin is just not trusting Jesus you need to do it tonight and say, Jesus, I am tired of not trusting you and your forgiveness. And I am going to trust you tonight. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto our Savior. That's what we're called to do. Why are we always looking at ourselves? We need to stop and we need to get our eyes onto our Savior. Uh, listen to Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That same sense of urgency there. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do we believe that? that God will abundantly pardon, that he wants to abundantly release us from the weight of our sin. And the text tells us that even if there is a flood following the rain, the waters will not reach. They won't drown the one who is repentant. God will be our hiding place. He will be our source of protection even in the midst of trouble. And it's interesting because in the next couple of verses, Psalm 32, 8 and 9, we see the speaker change. It's now God who speaks. God says here, 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So here's the counsel now from God to the repentant sinner, saying, I am going to instruct you and teach you and counsel you, but don't be like a horse or a mule, one that needs a bit and bridle to stay near me. Uh, we need to regularly turn from our sin as God is instructing us and counseling us and revealing to us, you're off here and you're off there. We need to be willing to say, okay, God, I got it. I see it. I know what you want me to do. I'm ready to make those changes. The fourth point here is turn from your sin regularly. You want to be that one who's teachable. As God has his eye upon us and he's instructing us and teaching us, you want to be the one that's easy to guide and lead and instruct, not like the stubborn horse or mule. In verses 3 and 4, David is saying, I was the mule. I've been the mule. And now that I'm repentant, God's saying, don't go back to being like that mule. Because when David was the mule, God put that bit and bridle on him, and he drug him. And it was painful. And we don't want to have to go through that. And the only way to control a mule or a horse is to put pressure on it, to put that bit and bridle on it so that we can direct it the way that we want it to go. And God's saying, I don't want to have to direct you with pressure. He's saying, I want you to be easy to direct, to be teachable, to be sensitive to these things. And when I call you to do something, when my spirit convicts you, I want you to respond quickly, quickly the way that you should. Proverbs 26.3 says, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. And when we resist the instruction of the Lord, we are fools. We're acting foolishly because God is going to have his way with us the same way that he did with David, the same way that he did with the apostle Paul. When Paul was resisting God's spirit, uh, it says in Acts 26, 14, Acts 26, 14, uh, when Paul had fallen to the ground, he heard a voice saying in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that was Jesus. And then he added, Jesus added to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are big prodding sticks used to move animals, horses and mules. And Jesus saying to Paul there, you are kicking against my prodding. I've got the bit and the bridle. I've got the goad. I'm trying to prod you along, and you're kicking against that. Don't do that. It's hard. It's going to be painful and unnecessary. You want to respond quickly to my instruction or my leadership, and that's what we need to do. We need to be characterized by a quickness to repent as God leads us through the war that we will live in in this life. We need to constantly pray things, uh, like the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. 
We need to always say, God, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, that honest prayer before God, God, please search me and try me and reveal to me what it is that you want me to do. If we're struggling with sin like David, we need to be honest. We need to be people in whom there is no deceit. If you feel like you're struggling with something, find someone tonight. You know, find another Christian friend, a sister here that you can go to, someone who's struggled in the past too and knows uh, the joy of resisting the flesh and resisting giving over to sin, knows the joy of true confession and repentance, knows what it feels like to be forgiven. And if you are that person, then be a listening ear to someone else who needs that encouragement, who needs you to help them through their need, just as you were at one time in need. And we see in the last two verses here, David, who was now the repentant mule, uh, David is forgiven, he's protected, and he is made glad again. Verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 32, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The final point here is we are to expect renewed joy. When we respond rightly to God's prompting in our life, uh, when we confess and repent and put our trust in Jesus, we should expect our joy to be renewed. That word there, uh, surrounded, is like engulfed by God's mercy. We're at a place again where we are spiritually healthy, which is where God wants us to be. And if we have constant feelings of worry and anxiety and guilt that we just keep stuffing down, God's revealing to us you're not in a place where you're spiritually healthy and you need to deal with that. We see David dealing with that in Psalm 51, 7 through 12. This exact thing, Psalm 51, 7 through 12, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David confident that God would renew his joy after he repented, even from a great crime. The psalm begins and it ends with blessing and happiness and joy that only comes from a firm understanding that Jesus will forgive the sins of those who place their trust in him and repent. It says there, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Shout. I mean, we know what shouting means. It means to yell, right? We've all yelled before. I mean, we've yelled when we're angry. 
Or when we're in argument, we've lifted our voices and yelled. We've yelled when there's danger. Watch out, there's danger. Uh, we've yelled when we're excited, when there's joy or victory or competition or a game. And someone won, we yelled. It's all tied to strong emotions. But have we yelled about our forgiveness? Do we shout about our forgiveness the way we should? About the promise that we have from an absolutely holy and perfect God who promises to never remember our sin anymore? I mean, talk about a reason for yelling, right? I should be able to yell right now like, I am forgiven. Woohoo, right? I'm forgiven. I mean, that's much better than anybody winning a game, right? Or even any argument. I'm forgiven. We should shout like that. We should really have that joy renewed when we think about what Jesus promises to do for us. Uh, there was an early church hero uh, named Augustine. Uh, some people know him as Augustine, um, Augustine. And Psalm 32, this psalm was his very favorite psalm. Before he died, he had these 11 verses literally inscribed into the wall of his bedroom so that he could look at them and meditate on them every single day. You know, we might not go home and stencil these on our wall, right by our bed. I don't know if your husband would like that. But we can write them on our heart. We can write these things on our heart. We can remember these truths. We can memorize these truths. And when we go through our life, make sure that we're not misdiagnosing something that we're saying, oh, I think it's anxiety or worry, when it's really something much deeper, repenting along the way. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at this fascinating psalm of David's, uh, to be able to see, Lord, that there are so many great truths here. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has never truly turned from her sins and put her trust in you, God, as we talked even about surrender, salvation and surrender, if that's foreign or confusing to her, God, I pray wherever she is right now that uh, she would say in her heart, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I've failed you and that I deserve to be separated from you because of my sins, because of my rebellion. But I see that you have provided Jesus to take the punishment of my sins. And I, I put my trust in that. And I want to turn from my sin and I want to follow you. If there's anyone in here that has never really done that, I pray that she would do that right now, Lord. God, please. And Lord, for those who are yours already, who are here, who are stuffing down uh, sin that they should deal with, even if the sin is just a failure to trust in your forgiveness, a failure to take you at your word. I pray, Lord God, please give her the courage right now to stop, to stop, to stop the sin, to trust in you, to really wholeheartedly just lay herself out before you and say, Jesus, I belong to you. I am here. I am willing to do whatever you want. 
if there's pockets of sin, pockets of darkness, things where we're twisting what you've called us to, God, please help us this night to stop, to stop and to trust in you and in your promises and in your son. God, we trust in your son because apart from him, we have literally no hope. And that's why we close this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.